When addiction is talked about in the church, it is so easy to default to the plague of pornography. However, so many are struggling with substance abuse such as alcohol, narcotics, methamphetamines, fentanyl, and more intense substances. And these aren't issues for only those we might label as druggies who are in and out of jail. These issues impact those who appear most normal at church. Not to mention the domino effect that a substance abuse addiction can have on a marriage, family, and even a ward. That's why we've put together the Recovering Saints Virtual Conference, where we have 20-plus authors, medical doctors, addiction specialists, and even those in recovery sharing their perspectives in order to help us as Latter-day Saint leaders be better prepared to minister to those suffering through and overcoming addiction. Recovery is real even for those considered too far gone. Help is available and we can assist those struggling to find it. To see all the details of the Recovering Saints virtual conference and to register to attend virtually for free, find the link in the show notes or visit leadingsaints.org recovering. All right, let's go around the room, do some introductions. I'll start. So my name is Kurt Frankham. I am the executive director of Leading Saints, which is a 501c3 nonprofit organization. And we are dedicated, you know, have a mission here to help Latter-day Saints be better prepared to lead. Now, me personally, I live in Stansbury Park, Utah, which is in Tooele County. I grew up in West Valley City and I've been running Leading Saints really since 2010 when it started out as a hobby blog. 2014 is when the podcast started and now we are over 10 million downloads. And uh, man, we're glad that you are now one of those downloads. Let's jump in. All right, today I have the opportunity to sit down through the powers of the internet with Max Hall. How are you? Man, I'm doing great. It's so good to be on here with you, dude. This is going to be a cool, cool experience, man. I'm looking forward to it. Well, I'm, uh, I've got to say, whenever I hear your name, I, my mind goes to uh, me sitting in the stands at LaBelle Edwards Stadium. It's 4th and 18, and I could see Austin Colley. He was right there. Like, I was behind your back, and I'm like, he's open, and you saw him, and oh, man, ah, those are such great moments. And then there was, uh, you know, you left, and there was a drought of the winds over Utah for a while, but nonetheless, yeah, uh, I've got so many memories watching from the stands, so it's fun to sit down and talk about your, your story. Yeah, man, just some great, great memories at BYU. And BYU was, you know, some of the best years of my life. I was doing well in my life personally. You know, I was just freshly married and and playing ball at BYU. And I had some pretty cool games that I played in. That fourth and 18 play that you're talking about, man, that's, that's one of them. And I remember, I don't think I've ever heard Lavelle Edwards Stadium as loud as it was on that day when completing that pass. I just remember the stadium going nuts and it being super loud, but Really cherish my time at BYU. Some of the best years of my life, surrounded by great people, coaches, teammates in that environment at BYU. And that was big for me, you know, because I went to BYU, transferred from ASU, where the environment isn't quite the same at ASU as it is at BYU. So I'd made the decision to go to BYU, had nothing to do with football, had to do with the environment that I was going to be in. And probably was one, it was one of the best decisions of my life, having some of the experiences there. And like the play you were at, the fourth and 18 play. And just some of the experiences that I had there was phenomenal, man. I'll, I'll never forget and I'll always cherish that time. So it's pretty cool you got to be there with me, though, a little yeah, bit, you know? Hey. got to see some of the games and share yeah. that. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, and that's I mean, a good place I wanted to start is, you know, kind of like on the being like the head coach at BYU, it's sort of this 
unofficial calling. It's almost like a mission president calling that you know, you're preside over this uh, part of the church, you know, that your Jones and runs BYU, but you know, I don't care about it and hold this high standard. And being the quarterback of BYU is sort of this his own standard that, that you have to live up to. Is that, is that pressure real? Oh, yeah, it's big. You know, yeah, the head coach of BYU, I mean, they're sitting down with the first presidency before they're hired. You know what I mean? Like, I remember Bronco telling me he sat down with, uh, who was it? President Iring, I think, is who he sat down with. And I was like, well, what was that like? He had a PPI with President Iring. Like, <laughs> were you able to hold it together? So, you know, the head coach job at BYU really is a calling. And right next to the head coach is the quarterback. And while that's not a calling, there's a responsibility that comes with that. So, man, I really tried to buy into that at BYU and do the best I could and represent not only a school, but a team, a, a faith, and be a good representative of that. And I felt like I was able to do that at BYU, man. And I, that's why I feel like I su- excelled while I was there. Right. And uh, so you had a successful uh, time at, at BYU. You graduate. And I'm trying to remember, you weren't drafted, but you walk on to the Cardinals. Is that how it went? Correct. Yeah. You know, draft day was a very frustrating day for me sitting there watching each round go by, but I was able to go undrafted, got to go home to Arizona to the Cardinals, play in front of my hometown and, and all my friends and family. And what a great opportunity that was. And, you know, in the NFL under the lights and all that stuff. And, you know, I went undrafted. So I thought, ah, probably not going to play. I hope I make the team, you know, and after the preseason, they made me the number two. And four games later, I'm the starter. So I, I was able to work my way up and get an opportunity to start games in the NFL, which is pretty cool. Yeah. And maybe just tell me, you know, through your BYU career and maybe into the NFL, like what was your what was your faith development like, your testimony? I mean, uh, how would you articulate that? Yeah, I think my testimony has been shaped in a number of different ways based on experiences in my life and honestly, based on decisions that I've made in my life. So when I made the decision to go to BYU, I felt like I was blessed and I was put in a situation where I could excel. And like I said, I tried to really, you know, embrace the role and speak at firesides and, and, you know, do everything that I was supposed to do. And life was good, man. Testimony grows. And then you leave BYU, you get out of that environment. Now you're in the NFL locker room and everything that comes with that. And I tried to still do my best and I did really well until the injuries hit. And when I say when the injuries hit, because that's when my addiction started, you know, I became the starter after four games and I suffered a really bad concussion in my first start. I was actually knocked out cold on the field, but they continued to play me. The next week I got knocked out again, cold. The next week I ended up throwing interception and then they pull me after the interceptions. But a few weeks later I get to go back in and then I dislocate my shoulder. And when I dislocate my shoulder, that, that experience changed me. And see, and I'll tell you this, you know, at BYU, at the Arizona Cardinals, I'm the starting quarterback, right? And with the starting quarterback comes all the glitz and glamour and fame and interviews and everybody telling you how great you are and you start to buy into it. And the problem was, is football became too much of who I was. You know, I hear people say all the time, hey, football's got to be something you do, not who you are. Well, when you put that much time and effort and energy into something, it becomes a big part of who you are. But the problem for me is, it became the only thing that I was. And I started to lose focus a little bit on my callings as a husband, father in the church. You know, I was consumed in the NFL life. And so when I dislocated my shoulder and I had these concussions, they took me back to the locker room and I started crying, I started bawling. And I said, I'm done. Like my football career is over. I don't think I can come back from this. And that feeling of, I just lost my identity as a football player 
was unbearable for me to deal with. And so what did I do? I'm in pain. I just dislocated my shoulder. I think my football career is over and they give me a 30 day supply of Percocet, Mm. right? Well, guess what Percocet does? It makes you feel better. At least at first, right? It catches you. It's deceiving. It's evil. It tells you that you're, that you feel better. You think you're a better husband, father. You think you're a better person. You're happier. All these things that go with it and it hooks you. Mm-hmm. The problem, especially with opiates, is it becomes physically addicting and you start having physical withdrawal. So then it becomes a daily habit and the addiction turns dark. So that was kind of the, the beginning part of how it started for me and then led me down a five-year path of addiction. Yeah. So when you were given this medication, did you like after you took it, did you feel like maybe I'm not done? Maybe I can get back out on the field? <laughs> kind of, but I'm walking around in a sling and you know what I mean? And I just... With the drugs, it just, I started losing focus and the drugs became more important to me than practicing or being home or making myself better as a quarterback. It was just, it consumed me. And so that 30 day supply of Percocet they gave me, I took it in three days. It was gone. Three days. And that was the first time that you had tried something like that, that type of medication. I had, that's what I'm going to go back to real quick is because the first time that I had ever tried was in high school. Oh, wow. You know, it was towards the end of my senior year in high school and a bunch of buddies were in a back room. We're at a house and they're in a room doing something shady. And I, so I go back there to see what's going on. And they're like, oh man, come in real quick. Shut the door. Try this. And I'm like, you guys are crazy. I'm not trying that. They were crushing up oxys on the table and they were snorting. them. Wow. So I said, you guys are crazy. I'm not doing that. You guys are nuts. No, man, try it. Try it. I eventually fell to the peer pressure hmm. and I tried it. Now, there's three types of people in this world that you got to understand when it comes to opiates. Number one, some people makes them sick, makes them nauseous, throw up. They don't like it. Number two, makes people tired and they fall asleep, takes away pain. That's what it's supposed to do. Number three, someone like me, it was the best feeling in the entire world. It made all my problems go away. All my stresses go away. I felt great. You know, you're high and you feel good and that deceitful. But I never got addicted to it. It was something that we did on the weekends. It was just kind of a thing. And back then it was a pill. Yeah, it came from a doctor. It's not that big of a deal. Like, and I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah, that's justifiable. Like it's not heroin, but it is though. It's synthetic heroin. Just came from a lab. It's the same stuff, right? And so the problem is, is now down the road with the dislocated shoulder, concussions and everything, I take the 30 day supply in three days, I'm out. So what do I do? I call up my old buddy. Mm. Still get those blues, you know what I mean? He's like, yeah, man, I got you. So that's when I took off, really, is once I hooked up with him and he started getting me the Oxycontin, you know, that's when it got bad for me. Interesting. So did I assume you had some various injuries along your high school and college path that did it ever require you to consider those things? No, I, I was super lucky in my career that most of my injuries until the dislocated shoulder was nothing that I had to have surgery for or that rehab or something in the training room couldn't fix. And to be quite honest with you, I'm a tough guy. Like I have a high pain tolerance. And so I never really had an issue of turning to pain pills for injuries until this dislocated shoulder. But I think it had a lot more to do with where I was at mentally than where I was at physically. Because physically, I could endure the pain. But emotionally and mentally, I was not strong enough to handle it. And that's where the Percocets and the Oxycontin became my best friend because with them, I felt like I could handle it. Yeah. What's the, like your structure of life at this point? Are you, do you soon, are you released by the Cardinals after this or because they know you're done or what, what, uh, what's your life look like in general at that point? 
my life just got starts getting crazier and crazier. So no, it, it wasn't the end for me, even though I thought I was. I had signed a two-year contract with the Cardinals. I didn't know if they were going to release me or not, but I ended up coming back the next year and got a chance to compete and play again. Problem was in the preseason, my second year with the Cardinals, I dislocate my shoulder again. Right. But I'm already a full-blown addict at this point. I've been using, it actually was the year of the NFL lockout. So during the summer, I, I never saw the coaches. I never, you know what I mean? I was just using drugs all the whole off season. So then I get to the next year, I dislocate my shoulder again. They IR me for the rest of the season. And my addiction just continued to grow and get worse and worse as I went along. And so was it just primarily like, was it the Percocet that you stayed with or did it branch out at that point to all sorts of other alternatives? Plenty of alternatives, dude. I got to the point to where I was, I would try anything and everything. The only thing I stayed away from was the psychedelic stuff. That stuff kind of freaked me out, like shrooms and stuff like that. I wasn't going to do it. But yeah, eventually turned to heroin, cocaine, meth, MDMA, Molly, like anything that I could really get my hands on, I was going to use. Now, in those five years, I did have times of sobriety. For example, I was able to get on a drug called Suboxone because I failed an NFL drug test and they sent me to a doctor. He put me on Suboxone. So I was able to have times of sobriety with the Suboxone. Suboxone is a whole nother issue. I'm not going to get into it. I don't like it, but we're going to save that for another day. So like I, I actually went back up to BYU and I helped coach uh, for a season when Riley Nelson was the starter. Brandon Doman was the offensive coordinator. And I went back up to BYU and I did really well for a while. You know, I was coaching, I was in class, like things were going good for me. And then I remember kind of in the springtime, I fell again and I started using again. So I went through another spurt of using and then I got back and I had an opportunity to go play up in the CFL. So I'm up in the CFL playing, I'm not using, you know, I'm partying a little bit with the guys and drinking kind of after the games and stuff, but at least I'm not using heroin (laughs) at the time, right? So I'm justifying it, but... I spent two years up there in the CFL and my second year, they brought in a new head coach and the head coach let me go. So I go back down to Arizona. Now I'm thinking, okay, this is really over. I get hooked up back with a friend and I relapse again, but this time it's a really bad relapse. I did about an eight ball of cocaine and I had about 350 to 400 milligrams of Oxycontin. And I found myself wandering around a Best Buy and I'm opening stuff out of the packages. I'm putting stuff in my backpack. I'm just acting like a complete idiot is what I'm doing. And they call the cops and the cops show up and I'm like, no, don't call the cops. Here's my credit card. I'll pay for all this stuff. Like, I don't care. What are you guys doing? No, we don't think so. So the cop, you know, went through my stuff, found some cocaine and some paraphernalia. And he said, sorry, dude. And slapped handcuffs on me, took me out to the car, put me in the back of the police car and wham, that door shut. And the thought that went through my head was it's over. That's it. I just lost everything. I just lost my family, my reputation, any friends, any colleagues. Nobody's going to want anything to do with me anymore. I just lost it. I just, I'm done. Three days later, it hit the press. When it hit the press, I'm on every newspaper, front page, social media, all that stuff. And when it hit, I remember I was helping coach at a different high school at the time and I left the practice and I'm sitting in a parking lot somewhere. And I sit down on a curb and I'm on a bike. I don't, I don't even have a driver's license at this point in my life. I'm on a bike and I get off the bike. I'm sitting on a curb. And for the first time in my life, I thought to myself, I don't think life's worth living. In. And maybe we should just end things now and not deal with this pain anymore. And so for the first time in my life, I considered suicide, which is a scary, scary thing. 
I was able to snap out of it. My mom ended up calling me right at that time, which was a huge blessing. And I was able to get to a rehab and, and start my path of, of recovery and, and sobriety. But it was dark, man. And, you know, addiction's hell. Like, there's no other way to put it. It takes your soul. It really does. It made me dark. It made me a different person. I was a, I was a liar, a manipulator, a cheater. A, you know, I would do anything I had to do to keep my addiction going. That's a really bad way to live your life to where you're doing that all day long. And so it takes the soul of the addict and it breaks the hearts of everybody around them. So my parents, my spouse, everybody, I'm just breaking hearts left and right. I'm causing all this damage. So now I'm in recovery and I'm thinking, how the heck do I fix all this stuff? Right? How do I get help? And so lucky for me, I had coaches, I had friends, I had resources to help me, to get me to a place where I could get the help that I needed. And I was super lucky to have that and have been able to stay sober since. But there's still things that I have to do on a daily basis to keep myself right. And we call them EDDs, your everyday drills. What are you doing every day? What are your non-negotiables? What are things that are non-negotiable for you? Like when my alarm gets off, it's non-negotiable. I'm getting up, I'm going to the gym, I'm doing my meditation, I'm reading my book, I'm setting myself up for the day so that I can be successful in that day and not use, right? And I've been doing that every day for the last, I'm not a day counter with sobriety, but it's been over eight years. And I've been doing it every day and it's worked for me. But without that, without a program, without disciplines, without tools, without non-negotiables and disciplines in your life, it won't work. So a lot of recovery is just, it's morals and values that everybody should be having in their life anyway. It's things that you do on a daily basis to make yourself a better person. You know, I tell people all the time, you are what you consume. So if you're sitting around all day watching porn and TikTok, guess who you're going to be? Who are the five people you hang around with? Show me those people. Show you who you are. If you're the smartest person in the room, get the hell out of the room, right? You shouldn't be there. So there's things that you got to change in a mindset you got to have in order for this stuff to work. And I've been able to figure that out. And I've been super blessed since to be where I'm at in my life. So from the from the initial injury with the Cardinals to uh, being arrested, that was about a five-year span of time? About a five years. Because I remember sitting there just like, dude, five years ago, I was starting games for the Arizona Cardinals. Yeah. And now I'm driving down to the police station in the back of the police car right now. Like addiction doesn't care who you are, how good of a football player you are, what car you drive, what house you live in, it doesn't matter. If you're not careful, it'll get you. Or even where you worship on Sundays, right? It's just <laughs> Yeah, it doesn't matter. The adversary will find you. And if he, if he finds a weakness in you, he's going to do everything he can to attack that weakness. Yeah. And that's what he did to me. And he, for a while, he, he, was, he, was, he was winning. Yeah. He had me. And you know what? The other thing too is since, yeah. you know, this is, this is a good thing to talk about is during my addiction, I could not look up. I didn't want to face God. I didn't want to go to church. I was so ashamed, embarrassed, and full of guilt. During my addiction, I had lost connection with the spirit. I had lost connection with my savior and even got to the point to where I was mad at God saying, why did this happen to me? Why did you give me this? Things were going so well for me. I could have been, I could have been such an inspiration as an NFL football player and, and done other things in my life. And you hit me with this, like why? And it took a lot of searching and prayer and I learned how to use the atonement and I learned how to rely on a savior. I learned how to communicate with him, not just your basic, hey, bless me today, thankful for this. No, I had conversations with God and I pleaded with him and gave him specifics on how can I get better? And so relying on the atonement in Christ was a huge part of my recovery. And without him, I wouldn't be with where I'm at. And so it's been a blessing for me. People look at me weird when I say, no, getting arrested was a blessing because number one, my secret was out. 
I had two choices at that point, die or get help. And believe me, as many hits as I took in football and got up, when I got hit with this, it was the first time in my life I didn't want to get up. I wanted to stay down. I wanted to dig my grave and lay in it. I wanted to disappear. And I had to make the decision to own it and to fight. And I remember in rehab, I thought my wife was going to leave me. So I wouldn't call her. I didn't want to talk to her on the phone. And she called me up, wouldn't answer. Finally, I answered. I was afraid she was going to say, hey, I love you, but I'm out. I'm leaving. I'm not dealing with this anymore. But to my surprise, she said to me, she said, Max, if you're willing to fight, I'm willing to fight and let's go. So I've been fighting ever since. And it's a daily battle that I've actually come to enjoy. And the small victories in life mean something to me. So, I mean, it's changed my life for the better. I'm doing things now and influencing people and having opportunities that I never would have had if it didn't happen. So I choose to look at it as a blessing. Yeah. And I was going to ask you with your wife's perception, I mean, did she pick up on any issues early on when you got those injuries or what was her journey like? I would say probably a year into my addiction is when she found out and uh, she had found some stuff around the house. And, you know, I was a really good liar though. I was a really, really good manipulator and I could convince her that I was fine or that I quit or whatever. So, and then I would tell her, well, we, no one else can know because that'll ruin me, you know, and our reputation. So I convinced her to keep it quiet and it, it was terrible. I put her through a lot of pain and suffering through those five years. She's having to deal with a husband who's just out running and gunning while she's at home with the kids. It's just like, it's embarrassing to say, but to her credit, she freaking went and got a counselor. She worked on herself. She learned about codependency. She read books. She learned about addiction and she found out how to handle me and how to help me. And so without her, again, is another reason why I'm sober, but it just goes to show how much the spouse, the parents, the, the church leaders, the coach, the mentor can influence somebody for good. And that's what I'm trying to do now. Yeah. I think that's a, that's a great perspective to, to share with church leaders, especially because they may see, you know, the spouse or those that are close mm-hmm. to the addict, they, they want to hyper-focus on the addict and, and codependency can be so tempting to, to mm-hmm. step into and to maybe a leader can step in there and help that individual just work on themselves, be patient, know that, you know, there's a lot of things that you can't control. I mean, that's what addiction is, this false sense on not only the addict himself, but those that surround the addict is this false sense of maybe I can control what happens here. Yes. And as addicts, we convince ourselves of some of the craziest things that that we think we can do, right? But the bottom line is we can't do it on our own. Uh, as many times as I tried, as mentally tough as I thought I was, I couldn't. I'd lock myself in my room and try to go through the detox and the withdrawals and get through it. I couldn't. I needed help. And I think that church leaders and bishops and stake presidents play a big role in this, but also need to understand a few things. Because if you haven't been through addiction or you're not a counselor or you haven't been trained on how to handle people with addiction, you may not know what to do. You may not know how to handle somebody who comes to you that's addicted to whatever. You may not know how to handle the spouse. So what I would say is, you know, as church leaders, we focus on how the atonement can help us in our lives. And if somebody is that bad in their addiction, we got to get them some professional help, you know, because a lot of us as church leaders or as bishops or whatever, we may not know how to handle that correctly. So we focus on the spiritual side of it, the atonement side of it, and then kind of make the determination if somebody needs professional help and get them there. The last thing they should do, like I remember, you know, I had a church leader tell me we should get a divorce. And I was blown away by that. And that, that was not the answer. So I just think we have to be careful with how we handle those situations. And the biggest thing is you have to separate the couple and they got to work on themselves before you can bring them back together. So don't make any decisions 
until you have separated, have different counselors and can work on yourself. It's the only way it worked for Kenzie and I to come back together. Mm, that's really helpful. And I was going to ask, I mean, is there any, you mentioned just during this time you had, you know, just the shame of it all. You didn't want to go to church. To, I mean, did your leaders just sort of see you as like, oh, that's interesting. Max is, you know, inactive or sort of stepped away from the church. I mean, what was that you and the church relationship like during this time? I'd still go once in a while to show face, but dude, I had a great excuse. Sunday, I have to work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's all it was is, yeah, I can't go to church because I've got games on Sunday, you know? And then during the off season, it was, oh, we're traveling a lot or we're doing this or yeah. I'd make up excuses, man. Oh, we got, we still have meetings on Sunday that I have to go to and that, ah, sorry, I'm not showing up. But really, I didn't want to be there because I didn't want people to look at me and be like, dude, what is going on with Max? Like I wanted to keep my addiction going. I wanted to keep it a secret. So the less people I saw, the better. Yeah. Yeah. And again, you, you, like you mentioned, you just get the addict gets so good at just sort of inserting that excuse or deflecting or distracting with, you know, with what's yeah. going on. And as addicts, we're really good at telling people what they want to hear to get them off our back. I was really good at talking to church leaders, parents, whatever, and, and convincing them that I was fine. And so that's something to be kind of aware of, too, as leaders, when you're dealing with an addict is sometimes you can't believe all of what they're saying because they're telling you what you want to hear to get you off their back so they can continue in their addiction. Right. So there's a lot of different techniques and tools you can use. But me having gone through addiction, I can look at somebody, listen to them and I can be like, nope, I don't think so, dude. I know that's a bunch of BS like that. Come on, man. We're not going down that road. But if you haven't, they're going to pull a blanket over your eyes and make you think that everything's fine and, and downplay the severity of everything that's going on. So we have to handle it very carefully. And if somebody is got a daily habit of an addiction, they have to get professional help. And then we rely on the church leaders to get the spiritual help that they need. And I'm, I'm telling you, the best thing that came out of my addiction is I learned about the atonement and I learned how to use the atonement and I learned how to allow Christ to come back into my life and communicate with him. And that's the important part. And then in, in your journey, like with the the spiritual, you know, I, I know some people may find interaction with the bishop early on in their addiction or in the midst of their addiction is really helpful. Others just sort of have to get through it, get some level of sobriety, and then they can sort of a, approach those spiritual dynamics that happen. What I mean, how would you describe your journey? Yeah, no, that's a really good point. And, you know, when you look at the steps of AA, the first step is admitting you got a problem meaning that your life would become unmanageable, that you need help. And you know, shortly after, you need a higher power. You need a higher power to help you. You have to be able to give things to God and say, I, God, I'm giving this to you. And I, I trust you that the, you know, whatever comes next is what's supposed to happen. And the higher power is a big part of it because you have to believe in something greater than yourself. You have to believe that there's a purpose in life. You have to believe that you're meant for something else in order for it to really work. So that's why they preach it. And, you know, for me, obviously my higher power was, was my savior and relying on him. So that was a big part of it for me. Now I tell people all the time, you're not going to pray your addiction away. You know how many times I got on my knees and I pleaded with heavenly father to take my addiction away. And then two hours later I was using again. It just doesn't work like that. You know, faith without works is dead. It's like, what action are you taking? Mm -hmm. Prayer is a big part of it, but action has to come next and movement has to come next. We have to get you out of being a victim mentality into being a victor mentality. We got to change your mindset on stuff because we've been stuck in this rut for so long 
first of all, our brain physically has to rewire and has to heal itself, which happens after about 30 days. And then the fog clears. Once the fog clears, all the triggers and emotions come back. So at 30 days, a lot of people relapse because the triggers are just unbearable and the cravings are unbearable at that point. That's why you have to be in professional help there to help you get through that. And if you can get through that, life just starts getting better, man. Things just started happening for me. And, you know, my life started getting blessed because I was making the right decisions. But relying on Christ, the atonement, and then taking that into action and doing something about it was key for me in my recovery. Yeah. How would you articulate what your recovery looked like? I know for just different people, it may, you know, some people rely a lot on, you know, 12 steps, the 12 step approach, or was there medical attention needed for a while? I mean, what did your recovery look like? Yeah. So I I was using so much opiates that I had to go to a detox first. So I spent seven days in a detox where they, you know, use other medications to help you kind of wean off the drugs and get you right. I was using so much that the detox did a little bit for me, but basically I had to go through withdrawals while I was in the rehab center. So for the first two weeks in the rehab center, I was throwing up a lot. I was shaking. My body hurt real bad. My legs were kicking. I was hallucinating, basically just banging my head against the wall for the first couple of weeks in there. So the physical, I will, and that's something I always keep right here, the front of my mind, because it's the worst thing I've ever been through in my life. I, I mean, I just tore my Achilles I'd rather tear my Achilles than have to go through a detox of drugs. It sucks. Like it's, it's bad. And I remember that as something that I don't want to go back to. And then the biggest part of it is reconditioning yourself and disciplining yourself to where you can stay strong going forward. When I got out of the rehab and I went back home, I thought I was doing great. About two weeks after I got home, I fell into the worst depression that I'd ever been in my life. Couldn't get off the couch. I wouldn't answer my phone. Uh, I wasn't working. And, uh, you know, if I did answer my phone, you know, people be like, hey, Max, how you doing? I go, well, I'm not using or drinking. But other than that, I'm miserable. I hate my life. I hate what happened to me. I can't believe this happened to me. I'm ashamed. I'm embarrassed. Nothing's ever going to be the same. Why? So I fell into this weird depression and had to go through that. And then about a year of that, my wife came back to me and she's like, Max, this isn't what I signed up for. You told me you were going to fight and you're not fighting. So then I had to regroup. I wasn't, I, I didn't relapse. I didn't use, but I had to regroup. And this is what I found was important for me. I needed a team. I needed people around me. And I understood that playing football. Can't play a game without linemen. Can't play a game without receivers, right? You got to have a team. And if I don't have the right team around me to keep me right, it's not going to work. So I got a team and I got a sponsor. I talked to my, my father-in-law, my dad, my brother-in-law, a couple friends. I said, Hey, if you haven't heard from me in two days, you guys need to come find me, but I'm going to check in with you guys every single day. And if that's okay with you. And so that's what I did. I had guys that I would call every day and check in. And those days started adding up and adding up. And uh, got me to where I'm at today, but it's still at the forefront of my mind every single day. I'm not a big meeting guy. I don't go to AA meetings, but I believe everybody's journey is different. And I found what works for me. And I try to take what worked for me and give that to other people and provide a team for them. That's what I'm doing now. Yeah. And I I love that. I think the core principle is you need a team. And sometimes people find that team by going to meetings and being in that that community. And, you know, because there are people that just like they 
love and and give all the credit to their recovery to the the 12 steps ARP or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And that really works for some people. Other people find other routes and it's easy to think, well, I think we just need to push everybody through these meetings, these 12 steps, right? But you still live by the 12 steps. You just have maybe engaged with them in a different setting, right? Correct. You know, I, I have a certain perspective on it. You know, in, in AA, you go to those meetings and they go around the circle. And what does everybody say? They say, hey, I'm Max. I'm an addict, right? I have a different perspective. I don't want to call myself an addict every day because today I'm not. I'm not using today. I'm doing well in my life. Do I have addictive tendencies? Do I have an addictive personality? Could I go back to it? hundred percent. That's why I do my everyday drills to make sure that I don't. But I'm not going to wake up every day and call myself an addict. So that was just me. You know, and sometimes AA, it's just like, you know, that guy gets up there and says, well, I stubbed my toe today and I really want to drink. And it's just like depressing sometimes to me. But if you can find a good AA group, there are some fantastic people in AA. It just wasn't my route. I know a lot of people who are in our program now who go to AA meetings on a daily basis. And that's good. That's okay. Do what works for you. So, yes, I still live by the AA principles, but I'm just not a, I'm not a big meeting guy. That's just not my vibe. And I found other ways to make it work for me. And, uh, you know, you referenced earlier, just now you're sort of in this place where you can really call people out on their BS, right? They're, you know, the, mm-hmm. the addict that begins to manipulate or lie. Um, and there's power in having, you know, a sponsor or other addicts around you. Uh, and so do you have what you call a sponsor or do you just have other addicts around you? I mean, what's it look like for you? Yeah. So for a while I did. And uh, my sponsor was a guy who was a former NFL player and had been through his own injuries and addiction. He's someone I could relate to. Hmm. And to be quite honest with you, he called my BS and I did not like it at first, but I said, I'm humble enough right now to do whatever you tell me to do because I'm miserable and I can't live my life like this anymore. So tell me what to do. And I did it. Now I don't necessarily have a sponsor but I have opened up a recovery center. So I own my own intensive outpatient recovery center. I have a podcast that we do weekly and I'm with like-minded people every day. So if I am having a bad day, I can grab my partner, Brock, or our lead therapist, Josh, and I can say, hey, dude, I'm feeling like this, man. I just need to talk through it. So I have people to do that with. Now I have an opportunity to be that sponsor or that coach or that mentor to other people. And, you know, 12th step of AA is giving back. The Mm -hmm. biggest reason or the best way to stay sober is to give back. So that's what I'm doing. I'm doing everything I can to give back and help other people. Yeah. And I love that. I mean, just this focus on that you need a team, you need a community. And I just think back to my time as a bishop and, you know, it's sometimes tempting to say, hey, Max, let's just like meet my office. Let's just deal with this between me and you. We'll get through it and uh, get you moving on. But man, now if I could go back, I'd be like, what can I do to stimulate community and connection, brotherhood, a team around this person, even if it isn't addiction? Maybe, you know, it's just maybe struggling with unemployment or struggling mm-hmm. with pornography or depression. Like if we can get our local wards to stimulate community around people so that they have that support, man, we can overcome anything. Connection is the cure, right? There's actually a company out of Idaho with September who runs Connection is the Cure. And that phrase is so true. Because if you're connected with the right people, you will be successful in your life. If you're not, who knows? So the team, the community, and I feel like we don't have that in the church, if I'm being quite honest with you. I feel like in the church, if they hear somebody struggling with addiction, they're shunned a little bit. They're talked about. They're judged. And I was. 
I was judged so much by people in the church, by bishops, by elder corn presidents, by just other general members in the ward talking about me, about behind my back and saying comments to me. And I decided not to let that affect my testimony because I understand people aren't perfect, but the gospel's perfect. So I choose not to listen to those people and to ignore them. And if you want to be self-righteous and, and rag on me, well, what's going on in your life that makes you feel like you got to make fun of me to make yourself feel better, right? We're all going through stuff. Mine was addiction. Yours might be, okay, you might be addicted to pornography. You might have, one of your kids might died and you're struggling or, you know what I mean? You might have a son that's going through it and that's messing you all up. We are all struggling. So why the heck are we pretending like we're not? Why the heck are we being self-righteous and judging other people for their trials and issues that they went through? Why can't we be more like the Savior? When the Savior came down on the earth, who did he hang out with? He hang around with all the people who were struggling, that were suffering. And those were his people that he went and helped with, and they all came to him and loved him. That's what it's all about. We need to be more Christ-like when we look at people who are going through issues and be sympathetic to them and help them and find people that can help them and good people they can be around so they can have that connection, that community, and that team to where they feel comfortable and have the drive and enthusiasm to get better. And that's the only way it's going to work. So some of the culture of the church bugs me. And I feel like we need to change that and make it less taboo that, hey, if you're struggling with addiction, it's okay. Let's get you some help. There's so many people out there who are struggling with substance abuse, but because of the church and the image of the church and thinking like they have to keep this certain image, they're scared to tell people. They're scared to go to their bishop. They're scared to get help because what if somebody finds out? Now I get judged and I put in the category. Well, forget that. Some of the best people that I know in this world have been through some of the hardest struggles you can go through. And they came out on the other side and it gives them a great perspective. On I do. I am way less self-righteous. I don't judge. You know what I mean? Like I'm a completely different person because of my experiences. And unfortunately, other people aren't like that. And I really hope we can change that in the church and leaders can be more sympathetic and understand. And leaders know if you're a bishop, you know. There's a lot of issues going on in this world. So why can't we be a team? Why can't we be a community and help those around us? I just blows my mind. Yeah. I bet there's a, a certain, I mean, a sense of freedom just when you show up to church. I mean, you can be real. Everybody knows your story. It's like, yeah, I really struggled for a while. And, and yeah, this week was a tough week, you know, and, and you can just be real about it. And I think the more we can, you know, you can stand as an example of sharing your story. Maybe that means the guy down the, the row in Elders Quorum will, will, will speak up a little bit more and, and we bring this to the surface more often and get people help in community. 100%. That's why I do it. Yeah. That's why I talk about it. That's why in Elders Quorum, I'll raise my hand and be like, yeah, when I was addicted to cocaine, this, 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 this. And everybody's like, Ugh. why is he talking about that? Because it needs to be talked about. Yeah. Because it's one of Satan's most powerful tools is addiction. And addiction, I'm not talking about just drugs or alcohol. Right. Addiction to social media, addiction to your phone, addiction to porn, addiction to, there's so many things. You can be addicted to work. Who knows? Like yeah, yeah. It's about finding balance in your life, but it's definitely one of the best resources for the adversary to use is getting us caught up in all this stuff. So, yeah. So, and like you mentioned earlier, and, and you were at the, uh, was it the alumni game at, at yeah. BYU and you tore your, your Achilles tendon? Uh, yeah. And so what is uh, even just treatment? I mean, if I tore my Achilles tendon, I'd probably hope they'd give me some painkillers because I, I don't want to feel that. So what, is it, what does it look like for you? That's the first thing I thought about when I did my Achilles. So, 
you know, when they say when you tear your will, I know it's true because I felt like somebody hit me with a four iron in the back of my foot. You know what I mean? Like somebody swing a golf club as hard as they could in the back of my calf. And I thought I was kicked. I thought someone kicked me. And that's what everybody says. So I thought to myself, oh, there's no way my Achilles just went like, really? So they take me over to the sideline at the BYU alumni game. I'm not even in the game. I was celebrating off to the side after a play and it freaking snapped. <laughs> And it's kind of funny. This is a funny story to tell real quick because me and Ty Detmer were on the same team and me and Ty coached together at ALA Quinn Creek at the high school down there. Uh-huh. And Ty's like, hey, Max, you got the last drive. I'm like, no, dude, this is your show this year. I was the guy last year. You do it. You know, he's like, no, man, you got it. So I'm like, OK, well, I tear my Achilles literally 30 seconds before the last drive's about to happen. And Ty's over there looking at me like, dude, come on, what are you doing? And I'm like, Ty, I think I just hurt myself. Like, I'm not right. And he's like, you're faking. Like, come on, get up, right? I'm like, Ty, there is nothing more. I want nothing more than to go win this game on the last drive, but I cannot walk. I can't move. And I remember after the game, they took me over on the training table and the trainer said, okay, I'll be right back. I'm going to go get you some crutches and a boot. Next thing I know, I got a line for me of people after the game that want to come up and say hi to me and get an autograph picture, whatever. And I'm in so like, there's breaking your femur, number one, tearing your Achilles is number two, as far as pain goes, is injuries. So I'm sitting there just tore my Achilles in a ton of pain, signing autographs and taking pictures after the game. (laughs) But I'm doing it because I know people came there to see me and and they deserve my time and attention. So I'm going to, I'm going to gut through this pain right now and put a smile on my face and do it because I know it means something to them. Now I went into surgery and came out of surgery with no pain pills. I told the doctors, the nurses right at the beginning, this is a non-negotiable for me. I don't take pain pills. So do not write me a script. And I'm going to show you how the adversary works. Do not write me a script for pain pills. Okay. My wife was in there with me to make sure. I said, we're not doing this. Had the surgery. I get home that afternoon. My phone dings. And it says, your prescription's ready for oxycodone at the local pharmacy. And I'm thinking to myself, my wife doesn't know. No one knows. No one will ever know if I go pick these up. And so the addict in me is like, maybe I should sit on this. Maybe I should just kind of sit on it. Let's see. And then right away, my tools kicked in and I said, no, Kenzie, get over here. Look at what they just did. I need you to call the pharmacy and I need you to cancel this. So I'm not tempted to do this because even though I'm eight years sober and I feel like I'm strong, you never know. So that's how the devil works, man. Like, when you least expect it, he'll hit you with something. And if you're not prepared, you know, when preparation meets opportunity equals success, if you're not prepared for situations in life, you'll fall. Yeah. Wow. Ah, that's crazy. Well, I, and recovery's going well as, as far as your, your leg, right? <laughs> yeah, the leg's doing good. I'm seven weeks out now and I'm walking around in the boot and I'm starting to transition out of it, but it's still a long road. It's six to eight months recovery full but at least I'm not scooting around on a knee scooter as much anymore and doing all that. Like it was, it's, it was bad. And I'm a very active guy. So for the first two weeks out of surgery, I'm sitting in my lazy boy at my house and I can't move. I can't work out. I can't go out. I'm, now I'm getting depressed. I'm in a ton of pain. It's just like, all right, I'm going to smile and I'm going to do this the right way. Like I'm not going to let my, that inner addict voice get the best of me. You know, I'm going to do things the right way. And that's what I'm talking about when I've said I've learned things that I want to teach other people with how to handle these situations so they don't fall. 
But the Achilles is doing good. I'm hoping to get back. We got football seven on seven stuff going on this summer, and I got to be able to walk around. Otherwise, it's going to be some long days for me. But I'm doing good. good. Doing good so far. That's good there. And anything else uh, you want to say as far as victory recovery? What's happening there? If people want to get involved, or what should we know? Yeah, no, and, and I appreciate that. So the the rehab center that I've opened here in Arizona is called Victory Recovery. It's an intensive outpatient deal. So most of our clients that are here come in uh, four days a week for three hours and we take them to go work out. We take them paddle boarding. We take them to go do cool stuff. And then we come back and we sit in group and we do individual therapy and we give them the tools and the resources necessary. But we do it in a very cool vibe. Like we're, we do it in a different way. We use a lot of the 12-step principles, but we're not a 12-step program. But most of those principles are applied in what we do. And so far, the guys who've come through here, we've had a ton of success with it. So I'm really excited with where this is going to go forward. But so, yeah, I want to be a resource for church leaders, especially, I mean, here in Arizona, but also we have teamed up with a sober living. So if somebody wanted to come down from Utah, we got a place for them and we can get them into our program. But I want to be a resource for the bishops that if they don't know how to handle somebody with a heroin or a fentanyl addiction, to send them to me. And let me do it because I know how to handle them. So Victory Recovery, uh, we have social media media and a website. So the website is victoryrecoveryaz.org. And our website or our social media is the same. It's just at Victory Recovery AZ. So if you know somebody or if you're struggling or you just want some more information, you can reach out to us, the phone number. You can write a message to us on social media, whatever. We'll get back to you. But I open this to give back. I open this to keep myself sober. I open this to be a resource for others. I've opened this because I've grown to love addicts and I know their struggles. I know what they're going through. And from the outside world looking in, everybody kind of shuns them. Or when you think of an addict, everybody thinks of the homeless guy behind the dumpster. You know how many guys I know that are CEOs of companies or own their own company that are making millions of dollars a year, but have a daily fentanyl habit? You'd be surprised. Church leaders, successful businessmen are struggling with this stuff. So again, that's why just kind of as we close here, it's why it's so important that we talk about it. It's so important that bishops talk about the, have firesides or or sit the youth down and warn them about the dangers of this stuff. And as leaders, we need to learn about it. We need to research. We need to know the dangers of fentanyl and drugs and pornography and social media and all this stuff so that we can teach our kids to stay away from this. You know, one of the hardest things I had to do was sit my kids down. This was a couple of years ago. You know, we got an Alexa in the house and one of my kids says, hey, Alexa, Google Max Hall. And I'm like, stop, Alexa, stop. You know, like, can we skip page? Can we skip page one if we do that? You know, because, you know, my mud shots and stuff's up there. But I said, dang, I got to sit down and I got to tell my kids. So I sat him down. I told him my story and I warned him about the dangers of drugs and alcohol and addiction. And they know all about it. And I promise you that is the way to do it. Because if you think your kid hasn't heard, if your kid's in junior high and you think he hasn't seen pornography or heard about fentanyl or seen kids vaping or anything like that, you're wrong. So why, why are we not? So about that 10, 11 range, we got to start talking to these kids and warning them about the dangers of it. So as church leaders, it's our responsibility. It's our duty to take care of the fold and everybody in the fold. And so I just think this is a big, important part of it going forward because the substance abuse and fentanyl epidemic, it's not going anywhere. And it's getting worse and worse. And I think probably twice a week out here in Arizona, we hear of another teenager overdosing and dying from fentanyl. And it's getting scarier and scarier. So it's it's an important deal that we talk to the youth about. Yeah. 
And if somebody, uh, Bishop Rick or Steak Frenzy in the Arizona area, do you do firesides or fist Sundays or those types of things? I speak all the time. If anybody wants me to come speak, they can get a hold of me. You know, the only thing I ask is if it's out of state, you kind of take care of me with travel and all that and and get me there. And I like to bring my wife with me. But uh, other than that, I'm open to speak as often as I can. And I actually just spoke at a fireside this last Sunday night. And it was a really cool experience for me. And I feel like I have a great story to tell. You guys heard a little bit, yeah, a little bit of it today, but the full story is really pretty cool. And I've been, I've been blessed to be able to share that story and help others. So yeah, I'm, I'm open to it. Reach out to me, get on social media or call us for, from the website. Or if anybody wants my number, give it to them. And I'd be more than happy to accommodate their needs. Well, last question I have is uh, maybe, and this is like a three-hour podcast question, but uh, you mentioned you just learned about the atonement of Jesus Christ another way. What principle would you leave with us about about the atonement of Jesus Christ? Oh, wow. So, yeah, I mean, growing up, we see the atonement as, hey, you know, you make a mistake, you pray for forgiveness, you know, you get forgiven, all this stuff, right? It seems so simple. And without getting too far into it, the atonement is so much more. It's so much more than just sin, pray for forgiveness, be forgiven. It's way more than that. The atonement is works throughout your whole body, throughout your whole bones, your whole perspective. Like it's a life changing deal. It's not just, okay, you messed up. Let's pray, be forgiven for your sin. It's who you are as a person. It changes who you are. When you have the light of Christ in you, when you have his spirit with you, you're a different person. You know what I mean? And so being able to tap into that and have a relationship with the savior, not a superficial relationship, a relationship to where you have legit in-depth conversations with him on a daily basis. And almost like you're getting him to know your life, even though we know he knows everything that's going on with us, but we talk to him about it and we go through it and we say, Heavenly Father, I'm struggling with this. I have this anger built up inside of me that I can't get rid of. I need your help. Please help me. And then you be still and you listen and the thoughts that come to your head, hopefully you're being directed directing you in the right choice. That's what happened to me. So it's more than just a superficial, this is get down into it and have daily conversations and get to know and have a personal relationship with your savior is what changes your life. And then, then learn on your own. You know, I have my experiences and my things that I've had that are personal to me. And I promise you, you'll have those experiences that will help shape your life going forward. So that's a great principle to live by is a in-depth relationship with the savior with daily communication. That concludes this episode of the Leading Saints podcast. We'd love to hear from you about your questions or thoughts or comments. You can either leave a comment on the uh, post related to this episode at leadingsaints.org or go to leadingsaints.org slash contact and send us your perspective or questions. If there's other episodes or topics you'd like to hear on the Leading Saints podcast, go to leadingsaints.org slash contact and share with us the information there. And we would love for you to share this with any individual you think this would apply to, especially maybe individuals in your ward council or other leaders that you may know who would really appreciate the perspectives that we discussed. And remember, visit leadingsaints.org recovering or click the link in the show notes to attend this virtual conference for free. It came as a result of the position of leadership which was imposed upon us by the God of heaven who brought 
forth a restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when the declaration was made concerning the only true and living church upon the face of the earth, we were immediately put in a position of loneliness, the loneliness of leadership from which we cannot shrink nor run away and to which we must face up with boldness and courage and ability.